You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are looking at Season 3, Episode 4 of Bugs, entitled Hollow Man. Episode synopsis. Louis Drake, posing as Simon Holt, courier extraordinaire, arrives at the Bank of England's Technical Operations Center. He is there to steal the world's biggest CD-ROM, but his cover is rumbled before he can get out. His backup plans, however, are successful, and he escapes with a data image of the new, completely counterfeit-proof master for 100-pound notes. But he does leave behind a trademark pre-credit sequence bugs boom. The Bureau is brought in. Jan informs him that they have 24 hours to recover the image before the real banknotes debut into circulation. Should it be found out that the new, completely counterfeit-proof 100-pound notes are already compromised on day one, the political ramifications will be massive. The thing is, they really ought to be completely counterfeit-proof. Each note has hundreds of specially designed holograms embedded in them. The software image is encrypted and can only be used on a special hologram printer created by Rockridge Imaging. How does the thief hope to use them? Another oddity. They are able to identify the thief as Louis Drake, but he has virtually nothing of interest in his top-level government file and nothing for them to help track him down. The team splits up, with Ed and Alex going to visit the home of the software developer who died four weeks previously. Beckett and Ross go to the press conference at Rockridge Imaging to learn more about the technology. Ross is quite familiar with Ethan Rockridge. In fact, his thesis inspired her to get into her line of work. Beckett and Ross are pretending to be reporters. Beckett and Roz are pretending to be reporters. While Roz asks questions, Beckett goes on an unauthorized tour of the plant. They've learned that, apart from the one printer in the Bank of England's possession, there are no other hollow printers in existence, thus further making the 100-pound notes completely counterfeit proof. Beckett assumes that there must be a second printer, starts asking questions, and gets kicked out of the building. Roz, however, attracts Rodwell's eye, and he invites her to dinner. Noticing as a reporter, she can hardly turn down a one-on-one interview. The deceased software developer, North, lived in a grotty old caravan. But when Ed and Alex search the place, all indications are that someone has been living there more recently. On the computer, they find a recent email to North from Drake and get his address. They're on the way. At the address, they find North alive, and Drake is there too. Alex tries distracting them at the front door while Ed tries to break in around the back. It doesn't go well, and the two men escape on a motorcycle. Ed manages to shoot the bike with a tracker dart gun. Jan and Beckett take their suspicions to the minister, who witnessed Beckett being forcibly ejected from the president. The minister is outraged that Beckett would suspect Rockridge or anyone who works at that fine, upstanding British company. He orders Jan to fire him immediately. They leave. However, he is not fired. Beckett suggests that Drake's file was strangely devoid of details, and he asks Jan to grant him access to see what he can dig up. She agrees. At dinner, Roz's identity is rumbled. Rockridge knew all along, but he's interested in Roz and suggests she come to work for him. The tracker dart has led Ed and Alex to synchroscan printers, and they bluff their way into the building, 
discovering a second hollow printer and scads of already printed counterfeit 100-pound banknotes. And the piles keep building by the minute. Ed sabotages the printer by removing a part. The night manager discovers that intruders are in the building, and the search is on. Drake also discovers that the printer has a missing part. Beckett has unearthed the missing data in Drake's file. Drake, far from being a master criminal, was just a patent clerk who happened to issue Rockridge and North's patents. Coincidence? Unlikely. At dinner, Rockridge is called away, and Ross goes on a snoop. She sees Rockridge and Drake together, and is captured. Rockridge admits to Ross that Drake helped him get patents issued when another company had filed them prior to him. Now, Drake is effectively blackmailing Rockridge to enrich himself. Beckett and Jan return to the minister. They track the file erasure back to his computer. He was just doing a favor for a jolly old English businessman, but he knows he's been caught and he admits it. Later, Jan explains to Beckett that tomorrow, the minister will be resigning to spend more time with his family. Rockridge and Drake take Roz to the printing facility. Drake orders that Rockridge should kill her. He cannot carry the orders out, and with a little persuasion from Roz, he sets her free, although that does not last long as Drake sees through the deception. Beckett arrives as Drake, Rockridge, and Roz struggle. Beckett saves Roz, but Rockridge is shot in the fight and later dies of his injuries. Beckett, too, is injured in a fall onto a conveyor belt and is being drawn inexorably into the banknote slicer. North has loaded up a truck with the banknotes printed so far, and he and Drake make to escape. Ed attempts to stop them by closing the doors, while Alex tries to sabotage their hydraulic systems. They escape the warehouse, but it is short-lived freedom, as the sabotage truck careens into a fuel dump and fulfills the bug's promise of a big boom, destroying, probably most of, the counterfeit bills and scattering them to the wind. Back at HQ, Beckett is celebrating a small victory in his personal life. He's gotten his bank to reissue him with a new credit card, albeit with a two-digit credit limit. Government employee Roz does Beckett a favor and hacks his bank account, raising his credit limit. Hooray! Another victory for the good guys? The end. I forgot to mention uh, Roz gets uh, Beckett out of the, the banknote slicer. It seems to have... <laughs> In case, any, in case anyone was thinking, yeah, he, he got chopped up, but it he wasn't got chopped up and wasn't meant. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, um, hollow man, hollow man. What do you think? I well, I I I, I kind of feel like at this point, Bugs is quite. <laughs> it's it's quite sort of it's got into its groove. It can produce a sort of slick thriller uh, that keeps you entertained. It's interesting watching it, you know, as part of this rewatch and comparing it to some of the earlier episodes. There's a reason why I think I I have seen this one in particular before. There's a there's a moment in it that I remember. Um and so maybe uh, and I I think generally this kind of third series setup is 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 kind of the one I remember. So maybe I hadn't seen some of the earlier ones, but we're a long way from that kind of uh, the the Doomwatch stories that we yeah. got near the the beginning. It's very much more kind of focused on let's you know let's let's have some explosions and yeah there are you know there's the pre-title explosion great big explosion there's the final acetone explosion great big explosion so you know delivers on all of that 
and then and then there's this kind of government spy agency running around uh-huh. on a on a conveyor belt fed into a slicer all the kind of staples of the kind of I was going to say the big budget action, but this is obviously she wants so not big budget, but nevertheless action. So, yeah, from that from that point of view, it's entertaining. But I guess I guess where that leaves us from our point of view, there's less there's less to unpick in terms of there being interesting stuff about it. There may be a few things, but um, yeah, it, 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 you could say that they've gotten a little bit hollow. You could, yes, <laughs> especially if you're wondering how the hell they got that title out of this, because that's not how you spell hollow. Yeah, I mean, the <laughs> hollow man would have been okay, I guess, if a bit rubbish. But yeah, it definitely. I mean, it definitely could be referring to the... a remake of the Sea Three Man from the Avengers. Anyway, yeah, I, you know, it's it's uh, it maybe. They were going for the the moral emptiness deep inside of Ethan Rockridge. He's he's really not the he's really not the guy that they portray him the high ideals in mind. He's just another money grabbing little punk. <laughs> it's like, but uh, yeah, it, it, except except he's not. I th- I mean, so one of the things that I think is maybe worth unpicking about this episode is the way and. I, I, it's pointing at something that is a theme through this season of Bugs uh, is the way in which they're dealing with the, you know, the fact he it's this poor little rich guy character that Roz is attracted to him, which makes him more sympathetic to us again, coming back to this idea that Roz, you know, Roz is a good person, so we should be sympathetic to her views on other people. But there's also within this the kind of dig that Beckett makes about, you know, they're having billionaire chat with each other because we've got this slightly bizarre uh-huh. setup now where Ross herself is a, I think, millionaire. I think um, millionaire, yeah. Yeah. And so that is that is kind of contrasted with the fact that Beckett, if not destitute, keeps having these kind of financial difficulties where his cash flow is hindered by the fact that the bank has up to now not allowed him to have a credit card i don't think it, i don't think it's a very kind of serious examination of wealth and the kind of effect of money or the lack of money which it could have been you know given the given the kind of subject matter of the episode but actually I I I think it's uh, yeah I I I, d- I don't know I mean Rock, Rockridge gets the redemption bit where uh-huh. he does the right thing in the end and then gets killed very kind of standard Doctor Who mm-hmm. I I mean yeah so I'll take one step back and say I completely agree this show has kind of evolved into a very kind of standard melodrama action show and the the kinds of things that they're talking about technology wise like the hologram banknotes is again it's not really a cautionary tale in any way shape or form it's it's really recognizing the inevitable and you know they're just they're just well, more like they kind of 
perhaps a little bit of the hubris of it's completely counterproof. proof. But apart <laughs> from that, it's kind of so. Well, I'll get to the thing about the theme of the money for a second. I I find this series three specifically to be so much more obviously intended to be chronological, which yeah. the other ones were not. And and this whole thing of Roz was leaving for the Barbados last week, Roz is back from the Barbados this week, kind of tied together implies that there's some sort of serialization going on here. But the stuff they're serializing, they should just dump. <laughs> like they should just get rid of this the 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 poor little rich poor divide and the the I don't even know what you'd call the love sick puppy. You know, I, I'm I'm longing for Sean Danielle. <laughs> At least his <laughs> serialization was kind of like, well, <laughs> okay. But this is like nothing well, else that was about it. On, yes. Yeah. Nothing else about this seems serialized. I mean, except for obviously Channing, who will absolutely be a criminal. And, you know, my now assumption is that while they were in the Barbados, she asked Roz to marry him. That was the thing she's not telling anybody because it's just it's progressing along the line there. Because it's it's well, there's yeah, got to be a theme. There's got to be a theme here about this whole. We got a name check for him twice, both from Rockridge and and Beckett or Ed. Uh, so I mean, he's 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 definitely important for some reason. And just, yeah, they don't want us to forget about him, even though they're not willing to pay the actor to appear in the episode. They yeah, they're keeping him in mind, even though. People tuning in just for one week, which, you know, would have been me back in the day. I was not watching every single episode. Will not have a clue who Channing is or what the reference is to, you know, in terms right. of the Barbados trip. Well, that's, and you know, that is the, that is the, the problem with that, that era of television is we taught, you know, Babylon 5 was just a few years ago. This is, this is the thing. They want to <laughs> tell a serial story, but the reality is, is that people don't or didn't anyway, at least sit down and watch every episode of a TV show. I mean, I don't understand that because I watched every episode of every TV show I wanted to watch. That was just me. But, you know, that that is not the, the common experience. Other people had lives and would go <laughs> off and do things. <laughs> but, yeah, you know. So, so, well, I think um, I may have had a video recorder at that point, but I'm not sure that I would have been sufficiently motivated to set a timer for bugs, so... I, I definitely fair, didn't watch every single episode. To to be fair, actually, in the in that era of the nineteen nineties, I didn't either. But uh, I didn't watch. I mean, I didn't obviously didn't watch Bugs. But I mean, shows contemporary Star Treks and whatnot. I didn't actually watch every episode, and I didn't I uh, didn't record every episode. So it, it's a true statement. I need to drift in and out of that kind of stuff. I mean, there would the have been things where I tried to. But then, you know, yeah. even then, there are those weeks when, the, the, with the best of intentions, your programming of the, the VHS machine would somehow end up, you know, recording at 5.30 in the morning instead of 5.30 in the evening or whatever. So I do want to step in here just for a moment and take a defense of the BBC. If you look at, a, if you look at a, an American television program from the 1960s, and you look at a BBC program from the 1960s, it is very, very clear that there is a huge difference in production style and budget. I'm not going to, 
I'm not going to lie. There is that, oh, Doctor Who, the wobbly sets. and that's it. It, It's clearly at a different level of budget. And you look at the ITV shows of that era that were trying to be made to be sold to the United States, and they are, you know, they are also vastly superior in production quality, not necessarily the scripts or the, the stories or the actors or whatnot, but, but from a production standpoint, they're slick and they look good. By the time you've reached here in time, I feel this looks every bit as good as anything that's being put out in the United States. It does not look cheap in any way to me. So, I mean, maybe, maybe it is, but they've reached the point where they produce slick just as well as anybody else. So, you know, sure. I know. I pay the guy. They don't want to pay for Channing, but I mean, that's, that's a, that's, that's, you know, that's not being cheap. That's just the production reality. If you've got a budget and the budget says you've got X number of dollars for, you know, staff and, or, or cast and right. That's, that's not. I don't want to be unfair in, in kind of dismissing the episode as being a slick action thriller. It's entertained me and it is, it, they have clearly got a a really kind of solid handle on how to make sure their budget appears on screen and make, you know, use the sets and locations that they've got in order to really kind of convey the fact that well, to I guess to hide the fact that they don't, they can't afford infinite casts. They can't afford scenes with loads of extras. They, you know, there's only so many characters who can appear in each episode, and it all has to be filmed in a, you know, relatively tight locale. And I think there were early episodes where it was more obvious that that was the case. Although perhaps in some ways they were more ambitious, so perhaps that was the reason it showed through. But this doesn't ever make you think oh they're you know they're really skimping on this or that what they what they do is they work very effectively within their constraint and they spend the money on the things that matter i don't just mean the explosions well the explosions do look pretty good i have a i have a note i have a note here that uh from i couldn't find it when i scanned my previous note but i tried I know I had a note from one of the previous episodes this season where I, where we pointed out that maybe the boons weren't as big as they could have been, and okay. they were a little bit lackluster, and I think they saved it up for this acetone explosion, which that is a trick that television production budgets do. They they yeah. skip on one episode where they can so that they can channel that funds into the next one, and I think the pyrotechnics budget for the end of this one is certainly the biggest this season. You know, a little Ferrari blowing up or whatever is compared yeah, to yeah. an acetone storage and fuel dump. Okay, <laughs> no, I, 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 I think they, I think they saved on the first couple of episodes, and we're we're probably seeing where the money went. <laughs> we save that for the boom, dog on it. <laughs> we might as well just I keep on the characters a little bit while I'm kind of in this. I know that doesn't sound like the proper segue, but we were sort of talking about the themes, so I'm. I already mentioned that I think I think Channing has tried the marriage thing now, but I don't know. I think Ross doesn't get a lot. I'd say she doesn't get a lot of development in this episode because I, yeah. Oh, Ethan, you know, you inspired me to get into this line of work with your talk of democratizing technology. I don't know that I ever felt that that was her her gig, but yeah, all right, fine, we'll we'll go with that. What I want to mention is 
I was very disturbed when she hacked Roz's, or, uh, Beckett's credit limit. <laughs> That's so, just like, I, wow, you ended it on her committing a felony. <laughs> I, I, I think we've, we've probably discussed them doing things like this in the past, things that seem to be quite self-serving. The, th- the thing was, in the earlier series, they were, as a kind of private outfit, they were paying, playing fast and loose with laws oh, around yeah. privacy that you couldn't really justify because they were, although, they, although you might think, well, the person they're working for was a nice person, they're still fundamentally running a private operation and they're profiting off invading other people's privacy and stealing other people's data. <laughs> and so I kind of wondered, because we've talked a bit about the kind of change in setup, and I kind of wondered if maybe some of that was cover for people feeling a bit antsy about the f- the fact that our supposed heroes were committing all of these kind of what certainly crimes to us to us now look well they were they were they were cr- probably criminal then but they certainly look fairly unforgivable from from this perspective but then despite the fact that you have this cover but then you get into this thing in this episode where Roth is still doing things that are just they're purely self from a government like, computer yeah yeah so it is it, it's kind of pretty weird and it, even, it was even, a strange ending. Yeah. Even the things where you think the fact that they're working for a government agency might give them a bit of leeway. We talked about the murder of, uh, what was her name? Kirsty McHill or something. Leslie, Leslie Ash's character in episode two. Oh, right. And I also wonder here whether Alex, because she was basically cutting the brakes as far as I could tell. Whether yep. whether Alex had thought through what the consequences of that would be, because if you cut the brakes on a lorry, there's a reasonable. I mean, it's not going to stop them driving off, but there's a reasonable chance when they do that they're not going to be in the best of health when that lorry is stopped. Yes, I don't know that she intentionally cut the brakes. She could have been cutting the steering lines. She could have been cutting. Well, no, it couldn't have been the steering lines because they don't have any steering lines in the back. So. It would have to be the, it would have to be the, I was thinking some sort of hydraulics for steering, but no, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have it. It has to be the brakes or the electrical. I mean, I, I, those were obviously I, I, hoses. I know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I know nothing about the way these things work. If it was a train, I could tell you some more, but I would have expected them to fail safe. I'm a bit surprised that it, it you know, the brakes I, I do stopped not think working rather than, rather than the wheels just locking up when they, when they I do not it, think that right. is the way a, a vehicle works. If your if your hydraulics go out, the brakes don't work. They are they must be depressed to engage. There there is no dead man's uh, switch on on brakes on a vehicle, a car or a truck. But I mean, it was nice of her to cut the lines when we had just moments before seen uh, North plug them into an easily disconnected socket in the same <laughs> spot. That she could yeah. have just, you know, popped out and, and flung over, um, which might have fail-safed uh, in a case like that. So I think we can count that then as Batgirl's first kill. 
Yeah. I, I, I sh- we should have kept track of their kills in this show. But uh, yeah, that's I'm pretty sure that's Alex's first uh, first kill. I think um, so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it did bother me more that they were now working for the government. It didn't bother me that they could look up Drake's file because we've got a file and you're the government. You're officially authorized to look at it or somebody yep. is. But but to to break into Beckett's bank and hack it, uh, that that just uh, un, unreasonably. Well, I don't know if it's unreasonably, but bugged me. Whereas the others did not. <laughs> it's like, I've just, I, first off, the other thing that bugs the heck out of me will move to Beckett. One, I am really sick of Beck being a whiny ass little, wow, two bleeps and a, two bleeps and two episodes, I think, uh, a whiny, whatever, uh, regarding his money woes and regarding Roz's wealth. I, I really don't like this. And, I'm also having a lot of trouble believing that a bureau chief, sort of, I'm not exactly sure what his position is because I thought he was running the place, but Jan seems to be running his place. So I assume Jan is in charge of multiple bureaus and he's in charge of bureau. He's a bureau chief in the civil service in the United Kingdom and he can't get some of his money woes straightened out. I'm not saying he's rich, but he's got a solid job. And he should be able to get this squared with a bank. Yeah. He he should be able to get some of this squared with a bank. It's like, okay, you've got a good job now. Before you were just a wild consultant that did all sorts of weird stuff. But now you've got a steady income. I think we can give you, you know, a little more than a 99 pound credit limit on the card. It it just, it feels, I don't know. it, It just, it feels too forced and too contrived to make him bitter about, about Roz's money. I can I, I mean I believe that but I I agree that I don't much care for the way the character is going which is unfortunate because I don't much care for the actor's performance so there's not a lot left of Beckett that I enjoy. Yeah, he's kind of and he also seems remarkably clueless about government work considering that he used to work for the government. Yeah. You know it's yeah. just it, it's all sort of being I do I do have some notes about the government in this because okay obviously we have this new setup with them working for the bureau of weapons technology reporting to jan uh quote jan and um in this episode we see a minister and at the risk of going off on my thing that i went off on very frequently when we discussed doom watch of which the hell minister is this this week is it the minister for administrative affairs i don't know if it gets mentioned but it was definitely my strong assumption that this guy works for the treasury that was my assumption like, yep he's he's there giving a speech at a launch of a new banknote so he's yep. clearly kind of connected with the bank of england you would think he is a treasury minister i would i would but, go along with that but whoever and, it is who the Bureau of Weapons Technology uh, is answerable to, it's not going to be the Treasury, right? Surely, and, I, and I, it's much more would, likely would to even, be the Home Office. Would even the 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 Minister of the Home Office be able to order Beckett fired like that? No, I mean no. You would have thought okay. that. What I thought, and, I thought that was the purpose uh, of the civil service over there was to have that. Well, Jan, not Jan, be political. Jan, Jan kind of makes a point about having having made an operational decision. And to be fair, I did enjoy the fact that she just kind of 
says yes and then ignores it and says, well, he'll be out in the next reshuffle. I I, I liked the commentary there and that did, that does kind of reflect the setup. I just, I I don't know. I, I, I thought it was, it, it seemed like there's, there's kind of literally no line of accountability through the Treasury. Whereas you would have said if the Home Secretary were discussing something with her, there would be an obligation to take whatever the Home Secretary says seriously. Whereas I think you could, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you just sort of say, well, that's completely inappropriate, Minister. You probably would want to be more diplomatic because clearly any cabinet minister, well, any minister, in fact, is potentially going to have some political clout and you don't want to make an enemy of them. But um, yeah, I did. I did just kind of make a note there that I thought the way the show was treating it was just like minister, therefore can order anyone around, despite well, the fact I mean, minister that has access to all data, cabinet level access. Yeah, well, yes, yes, good point, and that—that that is the other thing about it. Why would a treasury minister have cabinet access level to the... access to secrets? I mean, it's office. not like you'd want that. Yeah, the whole cab, the the British cabinet is kind of usually somewhere between twenty and thirty people. If you're saying this is a kind of very high level of security, you probably don't want to give twenty to thirty people who don't need access to any of this information access to it no 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 and and this this is this is another thing that it i gave a bunch of thought to and i because it's really hard to think back to 1997 and and how you go on this because i've worked for government i've i've been in charge of the security of the data and you know the our director their minister same same conceptual position yes if they come to you and say, I want access to this data, you can't say no if it's in your if it's in your domain, but you don't give them access to it unless well, you give them the data. There is an exception. Yeah, you give them the data. You don't have a oh, you could just call up anything you want here on the screen. And and taking that one step further, the other thing you don't do, if if you were to give them all access to the data. You would not give them all read-write access to the data. You would give them read access to the data. You would <laughs> want the data changes to go through the correct channels. And so this part had me cringing. It's like, oh, everything's done on computers this day, these days, and everything has a track back to where it happened. It's like, well, that's not actually true. It's like in 1997, that's not true. You didn't necessarily have a track back to everything because you didn't necessarily have, you know, if you gave them full access to it, and for all we know, it was in an Excel spreadsheet. You know, it doesn't it doesn't log that kind of data. <laughs> they didn't they didn't think about it quite the same way back then. So if if you know, fifteen people had access to deleting that data, I'm not convinced that there necessarily would have been could have been but not necessarily would have been uh a way to go oh that happened at this terminal be more important to find out whose login it happened under not which terminal it happened at yes but yeah well both but and it, you know it's possible but the way beckett says it you know he's making this very generic pronouncement which is not true because <laughs> i know i've had to track down stuff that people have 
deleted that, you know, for, for a variety of reasons they had access to and they had rewrite access to and they really shouldn't have, but the systems in place didn't allow them to work the data unless they had access to delete it. And there you go. But, you know, this guy's not typing up files, personnel files for patent clerks. So, or any civil servants. So, you know, it's just, he just wouldn't have it. Just wouldn't have it. So, but, but he's in the cabinet. So, and he's British and you can trust him. It's like you can trust British businesses. Yeah. Uh, Ed, let's, let's, let's take a look at Ed. Uh, sexually harass much? Yeah. I mean, that also, I do not like what they're doing with the characters this year. Any of them. I'm not, Ross is not getting much, you know, I feel like she's being led down a garden path and I don't particularly appreciate that. And she's certainly not knowing how to pick them when it comes to men. And uh, now, you know, we've got, we've got Ed who, sure, okay, he's attracted to Alex, but wow, that was, that scene in the truck was not, not good. Not good at all, Ed. He's called out on it straight away to kind of and then doesn't stop yeah the prob the problem with it is is that he is he is kind of cool protagonist so it doesn't it's not really enough it's not enough that they kind of show that alex is not comfortable with it i yeah. i agree with you I, I i i kind of think each of the each of the you know ros ed beckett have ca char character shifts that so far have not brought anything and in some ways have made them less sympathetic. So for me, the main character who has improved in this series is Alex because she wasn't in it before. And I have been enjoying Alex. I have to say, though, this is not a good episode for Alex. And that's that's before she starts killing the people. But you've got this kind of this <laughs> weird comment about not wanting to go in the caravan because, you know, it's a, she's never been somewhere that someone had before they were dead or some nonsense. And then when, say everyone's been somewhere where they're dead, unless you bought your house new. It, it's really weird. Cause it's not like there's a corpse in there or anything. You know, I could kind of understand if, if they were, if they were entering the caravan and, you know, there was a body that had been rotting there for three weeks that, you might feel Definitely. a bit queasy about it, but there's that. There's the then there's the fact that she, when she's she she goes to the apartment to uh, corner Drake and North is there and she uses North's name so she gives herself away, which is a, also a bit rubbish. So it's it's generally not a good week for Alex. I don't think. I, in a way, in a way, I liked that bit. Because I think what they're trying to get to in this episode, which I think is unfortunate that they're doing it in episode four, is that Alex is not a trained operative. She's a file clerk. And for all the bravado that she puts on, she is not a trained operative. She is a file clerk. And so, you know, I think the, the hesitation to go into the trailer is trying to show that very poorly very poorly trying to shut because it doesn't make any sense as you say it's like he's been dead for four weeks 
and he didn't even die here. She now knows he, she knew he drowned. He probably did not drown in his caravan. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that there is absolutely no reason to believe that there is a ghost haunting this caravan. Unless that's it, unless she's afraid, right? It, she could be afraid of the ghost. But she's a government agent, and I don't know about the whole situation with warrants and whatnot, but there's an arguable case that says that they have some sort of legal uh, remit to to be investigating this dead programmer, and they think he's dead. So I mean, we're this is a so it's this, she's not, they're not doing anything that will get them arrested, like in previous seasons of Bugs, where they would have been hauled off to jail if police existed. And so I I think that's what they're going for. The fact that she was so good in the previous episodes at being an operative, like she'd self-trained herself to be one, hitting that at this point is a bit of a reset and it's a, a bit of a stumble. But at the same time, well, it doesn't I would have liked sense. to have seen Alex that way to begin with, like this, the mess up. She, she was thrown by, she was thrown by seeing North because she thinks he's dead and, and she's hesitant yeah, no, that, about that... going into a bed. So I, I get that the way she screwed that up. I'd like to ask you some questions, Mr. North. Oh, Oops. Yeah. Seeing him and being thrown by that, you know, that that's both very understandable, but also it's good because it's clear that she recognizes who he is and then she picks herself up and carries on and covers. So all of that's good. The the problem with these other things that I agree are probably intended to show that she is somehow a kind of junior operative, which which is which is sort of true, is that the fact that the way she's been handled previously is all about underestimating her. That the others uh -huh. have assumed that as a file clerk, she, you know, from the moment she she meets Beckett and beats him up, the the others have basically assumed that, you know, she they, they just di dismissed her as being a non-entity, and she, her her kind of the depths of her knowledge and obviously her karate skills or whatever martial arts she uses mean that she's too useful for them to ignore and so straight away they're they're kind of taking her out on missions which is great because it just gets you straight through that thing of right now now we've got another member of the team nice the problem is that this undercuts all of that it's like why are they taking someone out on missions who is making these stupid mistakes why isn't she being trained as an operative and i don't feel like this is part of a i mean we'll see because you know maybe four episodes two of which were introducing her and not enough data points to to assess this but i don't feel like this is a kind of arc that we're going on here i just think it feels like a step backwards and and to bolster my point that says they were i think they're trying to demonstrate that she's not an operative say it's, it's out of sequence it's, it's definitely not done at the right time absolutely not there is also that basic threat not a threat of life and death where beckett assigns her to work with ed and she shows a certain amount of hesitance i forgot exactly why she did it but immediately the, the response is unless you'd like me to find some files for you to file yeah so they, they know and they're reminding the audience that she is a file clerk, not a operative. And yeah. 
they could be saying, we're doing you a favor by sending you on these missions. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, it's over my pay grade. I would like a raise. Because she could have been killed. Yes, she ultimately did the killing, but she could have been killed uh, on this assignment in, in multiple cases. So with the easily available machine guns that they have uh, over there in, in England. I should add, uh, they've given up problem. the pretense. They've given up the pretense. It's definitely England. Oh, yeah. Bank yeah, yeah. of England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> we got we got more uh, uh, more confirmation of that. Um, Let's see. What else have we got here? Oh, yeah, Ed. His medical condition doesn't seem to be slowing him down much. There's there's another piece of the what I thought was going to be a useful or important story thread that has been forgotten, completely forgotten. He didn't go near any magnets this week, so I guess all right. Yeah, but he's still climbing up, swinging on chains and uh, stuff, so he, he's not uh, acting like he's... Not at a hundred percent efficiency, so yeah. But I, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed at that. I, I really thought they were putting that in place in the first two episodes. It was such an important piece of the first two episodes that I, I really thought that was intended to be, I don't know, a reason to have Alex along with Ed, you know, to give him someone else to do a little bit of daring do. But nope. sorry, I interrupted something you were going to say. Well, I was, I was, I wanted to just um, return to the kind of theme of the money, but in very much the within the episode context, because <laughs> I think it's interesting the role the technology plays within this and the idea of being sort of five seconds into the future. It, in a way, it's almost <laughs> kind of very much like uh, without wanting to get into the unit dating controversy. The fact they have a five pound note in Battlefield to, sorry, mm-hmm. five pound coin in Battlefield to indicate, because we don't, we didn't have a five pound coin then. We don't, in fact, still have a five pound coin. Um, but people expected the to be one because of inflation and everything else. And, you know, one pound coin, two pound coin, five would be next. So, in order to indicate the fact that unit stories were set a little way into the future, you had that allusion to a five pound coin. I think for similar reasons, it would have seemed like a safe bet that because we, you know, we have ten-pound notes, twenty-pound notes, fifty-pound notes, but we do not have anything higher than a fifty-pound note. That at some point, again, because of inflation, I did not know that we would we would um, be getting a one hundred-pound note, and so in in that sense, it's quite a sort of an understandable attempt at being prescient. It's not quite worked because we still do not have a 100 pound note and there may be i'm no expert on the reasons for this maybe several reasons why we don't have a 100 pound note i suspect so to give them due one of the big reasons is about the fear of counterfeit money being in circulation i think i mean i have not handled many 50 pound notes they are pretty uncommon people do not like to accept 50 pound notes Yep. I try and avoid getting, they're much more common in Europe, and I'm, I try to avoid getting 50 euro notes because, again, people do not particularly like to receive 50 euro notes because I think, you know, fear of uh, counterfeiting. But there are a couple, there are a couple of things that, that I thought, I guess one of the things is that there was 
it was probably a bit of an, a kind of nerdy point, but if you compare this to, say, Goldfinger, where the raid on Fort Knox is slightly more interesting than just stealing the gold, right? Uh-huh. The, the kind of radiation holding it to ransom has and the economic consequence of that. There was something they could have done here with the... Because they allude to it, the political importance of launching this new form of currency and the fact that they can't backpedal on it, they can't call it off, they wouldn't even tell the minister, which does seem a bit stupid, that there was an opportunity here for rather than just printing a load of money and then spending it, they could have printed a load of money and then used the threat of circulating the fake notes as a way of undermining the currency. Mm-hmm. So I I don't I mean something about that anyway. I thought there might have been a more interesting story to explore with that. I guess the other th- the other thing that would have been even more interesting, but you can't blame them for not noticing this, would be electronic money. It's like well, the other reason why we don't have hundred pound notes is because people have used credit cards in place of cash and that that has alleviated the need to have to look the minister specifically said that people don't like that people the minister says that in this episode people don't like electronic money and plastic cards which yeah i howled with laughter (laughs) when i heard that but it's but that's the point they they're 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 trying to avoid that that kind of that kind of avenue but they've got it wrong they've got it wrong oh yeah and we're you know we're we're at a point now with um i mean obviously we've got that we credit cards getting easier and easier to use you know going from the kind of you'd still have had the kind of machines that you push the thing back and forth to create carbon copies in in 97 mm-hmm. through through the kind of electronic readers chip and pin contactless apple pay and now to the point where you know they're looking at other you, you know all proper proper forms of actual electronic money and they just as you say they just basically dismiss that yeah they 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 hit it. i i you know i'm I'm fascinated by the fact you don't have a hundred pound note because chris we've had a hundred dollar bill yeah. for forever and i i never i wouldn't say never see them but they're incredibly rare at except maybe at costco and but what's rarer is a 50 we have yeah. those. I think I've seen maybe five of those in my life. Nobody uses those either. And a lot of places have signs up that they won't take notes bigger than a 20. But I, I obviously, you know, things have changed since 1997. I, I thought that the British used different size banknotes as one of the, the ways to prevent counterfeiting. So you can't just, because all our notes are the same size. You take a $20 bill, you drain the ink, or a $1 bill, you drain all the ink off of it. You've got the paper and then you reprinted as a 20 there's no obvious clue that that's not you know well that's wrong whereas i know other countries certainly have different size notes so that and i would presume that the smaller bills are smaller size so you can't print up which (laughs) you can print down but mm, that's not much value i'm just getting i have i have got a tiny amount of cash still despite claiming that it's all gone out of fashion i think i um, have less than five dollars yeah, in my wallet my five pound note is actually 
smaller than my 10-pound note, only fractionally. But you are right. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Um, and I, the, yours are polymer now, right? As of 2022. Yes. Yes. No polymer. So no longer cotton fiber. Yeah, the United States isn't going to adopt anything. These, these ones have still got the Queen's face on. <laughs> yeah, bad timing for that. I, I, I think I read that the end of 2022 was when all the paper notes had to be stopped transacting. <clears throat> you have to take them to a, a bank to get them trained in. Yes. Yeah. Turned in and exchanged. But uh, yeah, so it, it's holograms. Let's talk a bit about holograms. The first hologram banknote was the Austrian 500 shilling note in 1988. So they are not, they're not doing anything as like, ooh, in the future, there'll be holograms on notes. This was, yeah, okay, this is a better hologram. But, you know. It, and it's it, only nine years not, later. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't know were the holograms on British notes by 97. I'm assuming not, or this would seem a no, bit silly. No, it doesn't, doesn't appear to be. Looking at my five-pound note now, it has a hologram on it. There are holograms on all of them. I think the only thing we have holograms on is the hundred, because we're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I'm glad you got that's an why explanation, we Fred. That's, uh... I do, I do. We're stupid. Um, yeah, that's why we don't have one-pound. Well, one pound. We don't. Have, the reason we don't have one-pound notes in the United States is because there's not much value. No, uh, you know, we still have one-dollar bills, which is just Goodness, idiotic. Pounds, idiotics. You know, we do have one dollar coins. Nobody wants to use them. So basically, when people get them, they stick them in a coin drawer somewhere and or trade them in as soon as they possibly can get rid of them. They just don't circulate. Businesses don't give them out. It's yeah, it's stupid. It's stupid. It's it's weird how different those kind of behaviors are because and nobody wants to change the size of the bills for anti-counterfeiting because it's the way the american dollars always looked it's like it's so dumb oh my word so dumb no plastics no no holograms except for the hundred dollar bill um which that's been around for about seven years um like i said i don't think i've ever seen one with a hologram so be kind of cool apparently it has this president's face on it so in other words, it's the the bill has Ben Franklin on it, and yeah. if you if you if you twist it, the hologram also has Ben Franklin's face on it. So you have to, if you have a mismatch, then then it's and I'm, yeah, I don't quite understand that. But I mean, I understand why if you have a mismatch, it's obviously a counterfeit. But it's like who would print yeah. a counterfeit hologram that had the wrong president on it? I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Unless they have them on fifties, I couldn't say it. I was I was reflecting on the facts, and it's kind of borne out by this discussion that we're having now. That there is actually something that is quite interesting to the oh cool science nerd contingent of the audience in terms of the way in which banknotes have actually evolved to combat counterfeiting, but it's probably not the kind of sexy technology that sells an action thriller so no. i i thought you know kudos to the design department in making the hologram printer look quite flashy with its sort of colored lasers beaming out it 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 does it does kind of give given that this is probably to most people 
nerdy, boring tech. It does look <laughs> quite kind of exciting. Nerdy, nerdy, boring tech. Also, I I loved the thirty centimeter laser disc. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You I've, know, I've here's the funny thing. My, we we haven't we haven't um, I've been noting down the kind of bits of tech that we've seen, like my old dictaphone in bugs, <laughs> and we haven't had one for a while that is so you know properly out of date. So uh, yeah, laser disc four. So I'm sure it was meant to be a CD because laser. So here's the thing. I would love to think that that's just somebody's copy of A Sound of Music that they used as a prop. <laughs> you know, they just, eh, I've got a laser disc here, put it in the thing. Because data laser discs of that size weren't terribly common. But they did make them. Sony made them in the 1980s, and they had a whopping 3.2 gigabytes on them. Wow. Well, I know. Considering the CD-ROM of that era was about 550, that's, you know, woo, that's a lot of stuff. Almost as much as a DVD, actually, to be fair, and that's a that's a single edge yeah. DVD. Yeah, almost. Yeah, but seventy five percent, something like that. Yeah, it's uh... <laughs> the funny thing is when I saw it, when I saw that disc, my brain did not did not pick it as a laser disc. I saw that disc and I thought, oh, isn't that cute? They thought CD ROM. Let's make a big one. <laughs> In the props department and pulled that out. So that's just ridiculous. Nobody would use a CD that size. And then I went back and I'm like, wait, that's a laser disc. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I, I, oh, I put them I out of my mind. laser disc, even though I never had a laser disc. Neither did I. I did have a friend who had one, but they all rotted because they were terrible technology. Um, now that laser rot. That, uh... But why? What doesn't that mean all of our CDs are going to rot? I mean, it's basically the same. Isn't I it? believe it's. I mean, our Some CDs are going to rot, obviously. I, I think the problem was that early production wasn't as good. And so they encountered right. problems where the, the, they rotted, which, yes, yeah, some CDs will rot. Absolutely. Well, some of my and, CDRs already have, but I'm hoping that my yeah. you know, commercial collection of music discs is going to last a while because I've not ripped them losslessly. I've compressed them using AAC, so it'll be sad if I... If I can't listen to it in full quality. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, the other question is, why does removing the CD, we're going to call it a CD anyway, stop the cutter? No idea. That didn't make any I sense. Would th I would think there'd be, I, I don't know, you know, if your health and safety standards are different from ours, but I'm pretty darn sure that if you have a, a big chompy chomp knifey thing on a conveyor belt, there's probably a big red button positioned along that thing that is an emergency stop. Yes. That's just standard practice, Roz. Go for that. Don't go for taking the CD out, which should have nothing to do with the cutter whatsoever. I've I, I mean, speaking of not having anything to do with anything, I didn't understand why they had 24 hours to get the laser disc back because it wasn't as if getting the laser disc back was the key thing to making the £100 note safe to launch. It was stopping them from printing a load of counterfeit £100 notes. And there would be no obvious reason to assume they hadn't actually made a copy of the Laserdisc. So the data copy on the Laserdisc... Copy a laser disc, disc, That's impossible. <laughs> but never heard of such things. Not this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... it's um, Or just, you know, taking the data file off and uh, put yeah, it on a computer yeah, exactly. somewhere. You can exactly. find one with 3.2 gig of storage. Um, 
That's it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was all kind of... You, you, you're definitely going cheap on the tech here on, on this stuff. It, it just Speaking of tech, the Dart tracker gun. I was so disappointed when he pulled that out. I was hoping it was the engine killer. I love the Dart tracker gun. And honestly, that is the reason I remember this episode. Literally, nothing else in this whole story stuck in my mind. But I am 100% positive I saw this episode because I remember that Dart bug. And it's awesome. Absolutely awesome. What if he uses it next week? Will you then not? Then, no then I will. Convinced? Then I will question whether I've seen. But they haven't reused any of their kind of gadgets so far. I mean, basically, I think their entire tech department is made up of disposable tools, like, single use. Yeah, yep. We only had the one dart, and now it's gone. We'll have to throw the gun away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was that. So we're first laptop computer. Yeah, that's not the first laptop computer. <laughs> That's definitely not the first laptop computer. That looked to me like a, uh, what did they call them? Uh, I just thought that looked quite PowerBook for 97. Yeah. I think a PowerBook was the first. Well, I think that was a PowerBook, which is not the first lap. You know, I tried looking up laptop history and the problem is, is that stuff that they put down is, this is the first laptop, the 1981 Osborne one. And I go, that is not a laptop. That's a luggable at best. So trying to poke through them, you know, there's in 89, there's a Zenith data systems mini sport that does look a bit like a laptop. That might be, that might be a good one, but yeah, no, that, that one wasn't it. I feel like they, they let them down on the props department there. Let's see. Um, is it true? I mean, I know, I know I've heard this before. I've heard it here. I've heard it on watching the UK news and whatnot. But does no one recognize that when you resign and you say you're resigning to spend more time with your family, that you've been fired? I mean, if the idea is to save face, wouldn't you make up a different lie at this point? People do tend to make up different lies. But this is 97. And God, I can't remember who was the first minister to use that for. It was probably a minister in the major government. I seem to remember a lot of them having to resign over sex scandals. So, you know, you want to spend more time with your family. Yeah. At the time, I think it would have been, it would have been more of a kind of contemporary comment and less of a hoary old cliche. Because they didn't some of Boris's people resign to spend more time with their family? I don't think they would have said it in those terms. I mean, yes, but no. Okay. I, I, I thought I've heard one recently, but, you know, there were so many. So many resignations for so many silly reasons. Uh, it it could have been commentary instead of instead of what they actually said. I blame Jonathan Pye. Um, let's see. I would mention that the security guard passed the inhaler, which triggered off the metal detector. But considering that it was disguised as an inhaler and they didn't bother to look at it. Wouldn't it have just made more sense for Drake to put it in the little basket and let them look at it and go, oh, it's an inhaler? Yeah, well, I I felt that there were two forms of stupid there. One of them is exactly that. But the other one is once he goes through and sets off the metal detector and he goes, oh, it's the inhaler, 
and then it's he not, should still go through the done. he should still go through the metal detector because they don't know that it was the in the inhaler was the yeah. only thing that would have let it off. He could have had a gun as well as the inhaler, and, and surely bomb, they would, as it turns out. Well, well, yeah, quite. I mean, surely they would have known that in 1997. I don't know if if we're kind of much more security literate because we're just used to going through all of these things at airports these days. But that just stuck out as incredibly lax. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't even know what they were doing. I mean, what was, why is there a routine transfer of that data disk or no idea? I guess maybe he was supposed to be taking it to the bank of England printer so they could make up a few more notes. I don't, yeah, I didn't I quite understand what that was. So we're not, we're not printing this week. So take it back to the technical operations vault or something. I, yeah. Well, um, I so I guess I suppose the, the whole point is there's only one copy of the thing. So yeah. God knows what happens if it, you know, if it gets scratched, but yeah. Carrying it around like that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, we just run another copy off of the image we have on the hard drive. That That's the thing that you don't have. So yeah, that's the problem. Or with the, the backup file. Yeah. That's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We backed it up. Of course we backed it up. I don't, I don't know that I have anything else. Um, I, well, I'm going to, I'm going to pick one thing, but there's actually something that I just missed when we were talking about the the whole thing about millionaires and billionaires and this theme about um, having sympathy for the poor little rich guy, which is the conversation that I did think was actually quite interesting relating to that, is the discussion, and obviously there's a, there's a plot payoff to this, but it's the discussion that Ros has with Rockridge about luck because he's convinced that he makes his own luck. And if you don't know that when he's talking about making his own luck, he's actually talking about fixing the patent, it resonates with this thing that a lot of people who become very wealthy in one field seem to become convinced of, which is that <laughs> they couldn't have become that rich unless they were really, really clever. And even... I wasn't going to mention any names because, you know, it's not just him, but it that was not it, a name. That was know, a furball. In that, in that instance, it's a very clear example of where even if they might have had some particular capability within one field, they somehow don't recognize the limits of that. They just think they are, must be brilliant because their money shows that that is the case. Whereas, in fact, if you accept there is an element of luck in who makes it and who doesn't, then having the money no longer shows that you are brilliant. It may be that you couldn't have got where you are without having a certain level of competence, but it doesn't mean there aren't better people than you who have failed because they haven't lucked out in the way that you have. I, so, I feel that every way, every day about every millionaire on this planet, I'm pretty well, sure I'm quite, better than them. Quite. But, so I, I thought that was a pretty interesting conversation because certainly, you know, there may be a cultural difference here, but certainly there's, there is a kind of difference to uh, deference, sorry, to the wealthy um, that is, is kind of a part of our culture that's pretty icky. And it's unusual to, for it to be called out in a kind of noisy action, you know, I, yeah, I don't, I'm not trying to dismiss bugs, but it's not kind of. It's selling point, isn't it? It's intellectual depth. I think you're not. I think you're not wrong there. I think there is a different. The deference is done a different way in in 
and I'm obviously looking at it from the outside, but when I watch it, I definitely, you see a lot of people with money are your betters. There is that class thing that mm-hmm. we don't yeah. necessarily have. And so then they go to Oxford and, and then there is, there's also a, a occasional bit of studiness between new and old money that you see. Yes. Whereas in the U.S., obviously, being rich, yes, these, these people think they're, it doesn't matter what they are. If they ran a business and they they work their tail off, I, I've seen this so, so many times, and not just talking about the mega rich, I'm talking about anybody that has had a successful business. The the lack of humility there is is staggering. It's like, yes, I worked, I worked for 10 years in my restaurant and- Every day, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. I worked hard for this money. Yes, you did, but you were also lucky. Yes. You, know, you were lucky. You, Your business was in the right place at the right time. It had the right amount of competition and the right amount of support from your bank or from your family or from any number of things to get it up off the ground. It does not discount the work. It does, dis- not, it does not diminish how hard you got to get there but you cannot think that you're better than the people who work for you just because is, you got it. And, and, you know, and, and that is the lie they sell in the United States. Anyone can yeah. grow up to be a millionaire. Anyone can grow up to be the president to the United States. That's, that is our lie that we live, eat and breathe. And it's killing us. <laughs> it's like, it's killing that us. Is, it's that, killing the planet and everything else. That's, that's absolutely the, the point And the, the connection I was wanting to make just very, very much more eloquently put that I managed to express it. Yeah. hundred percent that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think we're supposed to see Roz as the, you know, if you could, if you do that and you get success and you have the humility to go with it, there's no harm in being a rich person sort of. And she, I mean, and there she are people is, who would she, argue but, that there is, but, eh. but she is, she is the one she, this is maybe what, what, allows her from a kind of dramatic viewpoint to make the argument more credible. She is the one highlighting the luck aspect of it. And you can't say, oh, that's our grapes. You know, you you wouldn't say that if you had been brilliant enough to make a million pounds because she has been brilliant enough to make a million pounds. But she's recognizing that luck is a big part of that, just as it is for Rockridge. So she's definitely got more self-awareness than he has. Although I guess his self-awareness is that he knows he cheated. Yeah. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, in the first episode, there is a line of dialogue that says her being rich is Channing's idea. Or idea, I don't know that, that he is the one that managed to convince her to finally market a piece of tech that she developed. So up to this point, she has not been doing that. And that it was the... insertion of Channing in the equation that caused that. So, well, but it, I, 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 no, I, think, monitor. I think that still supports the point, which is that what Ross has been doing is no different. So she, it's not like it, she suddenly invented something really brilliant. She's been inventing really brilliant things for ages. It's just this one happens to have made a lot of money. And you made the point that it's partly about, you know, who who helps you out? Who supports you? Bumping into the the right kind of 
partners to work with at the right time. And that appears to be what has happened here at this point. Yeah. I, I guess I should, I should point out one thing. I do, I apparently didn't write it in my notes. I should point out one thing that did bug me about this episode. And that is the absolutely ludicrous notion that he is trying to sell the lie that we've made one and it's the only one. <laughs> and, and I spent all my R&D money and all my time and all my staff to build one printer, which we are going to sell to the British government to make their notes. I mean, maybe he's not selling it. Maybe he's leasing it. So he's got a long-term, very lucrative, ongoing bill. But it, just, it makes no sense from a business standpoint. It makes no sense at all from a business standpoint. He's got to sell that to the United States or to whoever prints notes in, in Europe or, yeah, yeah. you know, he, he has to. And once you've started doing that, then you have to have spare parts. And then you have people who could ultimately get enough parts to build one. And, the, and you know, it's, it's not going to be. Yeah, no, it's completely a, it's cool a crazy crazy form of yeah. security. <laughs> security through obscurity, I believe, is what we used to call it. Um, yeah, I, pro I, I promised I had one last thing to pick on. So here it is. Rockridge gets a posthumous knighthood. You can't get Can a posthumous knighthood. Okay, good. No, I didn't think that was a thing. I didn't think that was Absolutely a thing. I thought not. Back when you die, doesn't your knighthood come back out into the pool so they can give it to someone else? Is, isn't uh, it like a Well, I didn't think it was with it being, being, oh, does it, do you? God, I, I, I do find it difficult to keep track of these things. Peerages can be can be hereditary. I don't think knighthoods can be, but equally, I don't think a knighthood is something that you can award to someone who is dead. I mean, yeah, it, that's that's not how it works. It's not like uh, George Cross or something like that. It's 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 you're entitled to call yourself sir. I mean, what are they going to do? Put it on his gravestone? <laughs> it's absolute yes. nonsense. Anyway. Where, regardless of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it is a thing. You can't be posthumously knighted, so that's absolute nonsense. Okay, I'm just going to take a look here, and I'm seeing that there are no limits to the total number of fourth and fifth class, but there are limited to 300 knights and dames of the Grand Cross, 845 knights and dames, commander, 8,960 8, commanders, and then whatever comes after that are are unlimited so yes there are some some limits but they probably gave him a cheap one since he's dead i would assume <laughs> the special don't think dead it, knight. don't think it matters how cheap it is you you can't do it you can't do it but the, the, i'm tis but a scratch knighthood <laughs> all right um what is our if that is all what is our next episode of bugs nuclear family a nuclear family. So this is going to be about something to do with genetics. Gene nucleuses. That's that's going to be what it is. It's going to be about atomic weapons. Though, well, how boring. Those are, those are yeah. high tech in 1997. No, but they do explode and they make big explosions. Well, I suspect even Bugs isn't going to blow one up. We shall no. see. No. Can't, not too many shows I've ever seen have ended with an atomic bomb going off. Uh, there was one Six Million Dollar Man movie, which I thought was really amazing. And at the end of it, they, they detonated a nuke within a few miles of Florida. But uh, yeah, <clears throat> but typically no. Typically they don't do that. 
Well, I don't. I mean, maybe, maybe they'll go to an atomic test site. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it will just be about a nuclear family. I could be wrong. <laughs> like this one was about a, a man who was a hologram. Yeah. And all. Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure as always. Listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol or patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at fusionpatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusionpatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we begin our look at the 2013 Japanese TV series Neo Ultra Q, intended as a second season of 1966's Ultra Q. In our first look, we'll take on the first two episodes of Neo Ultra Q. In Quo Vadis, it is a world populated with kaiju, not all of them being overtly dangerous. Tensions run high between the anti-kaiju and kaiju preservation factions as one inexorably makes his way through a city towards a sacred destination. And then, in Laundry Day, Mr. Brethren runs a laundry service, and the quality of his work is legendary. Mr. Brethren is also a kindly, shy kaiju. What happens when the UN Secretary General comes and asks for something really big to be cleaned? Come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol.